I wonder uh, what um, makes you afraid? When do you feel afraid? What scares you? And think about even this last week. When were moments where you felt afraid, where you felt scared? And oftentimes we might say, well, I was worried or I was anxious, or I was stressed, or I was overwhelmed. And I think all those words can be showing there's some sort of level of fear in that, in that thing. And so was there any situation where you felt fear, or you got a little panicked, or you were worried about something, or you felt your heart start to beat fast, or you got like, you know, kind of knots or butterflies in your stomach, and you had this, this fear in you. I remember when I was in speech um, communications class in college, it was like every time we had to give us one of the speeches, I had my stomach just being knots, and I had all these butterflies, and I always prayed, God, you know, take this away, help me calm down. And so maybe you felt that this week, that feeling of fear, am I going to mess up, or what's going to happen here, how am I going to take care of this? And I found a couple of lists of the most common phobias that um, people have, and phobia actually comes from, I don't know if it's Greek, but the Greek word um, is, you know, phobos is the Greek word for fear, so phobias, things that people fear. So there's acrophobia, which is fear of heights, Aerophobia, which is fear of flying. Arachnophobia, fear of spiders. Astrophobia, fear of thunder and lightning. Autophobia, fear of being alone. Claustrophobia, fear of confined or crowded spaces. Hemophobia, fear of blood. Hydrophobia, fear of water. Aphidiophobia, fear of snakes. And zoophobia, fear of animals. So do you have... Any of those fears, you, you get kind of worried, like, I'm about to fly on a plane, I get kind of worried, or you see a spider or something, or a snake, and you get uh, kind of worked up. Um, a, a phobia um, is defined as an extreme or irrational fear or aversion to something. And so they say irrational, but um, if you have one of those, these fears, that we just, all those, those phobias we said, like, there's probably a good reason for it. Um, for when I, I, used, I, mean, I kind of still love dogs, but when I was growing up, I think I was around maybe 11 or 12. Um, I was petting a dog. Everything seemed to be going fine. And the dog bit me and just started shaking its arm. You can see the scars on my arm. And, um, and so to this day, I am uh, not like super, you know, I don't have a phobia of dogs, but it's like I'm always very cautious and trying to figure out, is this dog like okay? And I'm kind of worried about it. And uh, there's also uh, this fear, something called trypanophobia, which is an extreme fear of medical procedures involving uh, needles or injections and I used to you know, every time I got shots I used to watch the needle go in you know maybe you're like maybe that gets you kind of weird but I just watch it go in and it's like oh, I'm fine you know watch blood get drawn out I know some people kind of may faint to that maybe it's making you woozy just me talking about it but in college I gave plasma for a time and they paid you to give your plasma and I had a complication one of the times that really freaked me out as I was watching what was happening to my arm I won't explain it because you might get weirded out by it. But now, um, before that incident, I wasn't afraid of needles. And now, if I have to get a shot or anything, I look away. I don't look at it. And so, like, that, so you may have an irrational fear of something, but you might actually have you know, a reason for why you had that fear. Maybe it's like kind of extreme, um, but you may have a dislike for something for a reason. And throughout our days and our weeks and our lives, uh, there can be many things that make us feel afraid. And consider the similar emotion of overwhelmed. Maybe you wouldn't say, oh, I was, I'm been afraid this week. But you say, I was overwhelmed. You know, think about when you've been overwhelmed by something recently. And what does it take to get you to feel overwhelmed? And most of us, we might feel overwhelmed by the same thing over and over again. Or like different situations where it's the same thing. Like every time I get in this situation, I feel overwhelmed. 
And for me, I, have, I feel overwhelmed when I have too much to do in too little time. When it's like, this is all the stuff that has to be done, and I only have this much time to do it. And often Katie can tell when I'm feeling overwhelmed, I kind of tell her, and she'll um, be like, okay, let me do some things for you. And you know, she helps me out. She's kind of like, you know, little, I don't know what you'd say, the, the magic behind the, the scenes of <laughs> church things. It's like, well, how did Mitch get all that done? Well, Katie probably helped me. Um, and when we feel scared or overwhelmed, we go into, our brains kind of go into survival mode. We have a, a fight or a flight or a freeze response. You've probably heard that before. And there's a, a, it can often happen when we feel threatened. That's where fear comes from. Um, we're feeling threatened. And there's this book um, on relationships and brain science. It's called The Joy Switch. And it, talks, it says this, uh, Anytime we feel threatened, the brain's survival circuit kicks into high gear. We're ready to fight, flee, or freeze. And the survival circuit assesses whether we can fight our way out or whether we need to run. And if we cannot outrun the threat, we shut down and freeze with the hope we'll be around once the threat disappears. And a threat to self isn't just feeling like, oh, my life is in danger, like, you know, this train is going to crash or something like that. Oh, no, a threat to myself. But um, rejection can be seen as a threat to myself, to my well-being. Or ridicule can feel like a threat to uh, myself, or failure could be seen as a threat to self. Like if these things happen, that would be threatening to me, my well-being, my existence, or whatever. And we can go into survival mode um, in different ways. It's when it can be when just when circumstances or people remind us of pain from the past. Of like you know somebody could be you know, could it be a totally safe situation, but it reminds us of this thing um, that our sibling did, or this thing that happened in high school. And you can think you know maybe rejection or ridicule could feel like a huge threat because you were made fun of or bullied as a kid. Or failure might feel very threatening because uh, people like a coach or a caregiver in your life just did not accept mistakes. And so anytime you're about to fail, it's like, this is a threat to me because that thing is going to happen that happened in the past. You may consider, well, okay, why is it important? Why is it important to know what we fear and to, to deal with it? Well, simply what we fear controls us. What we fear is on the throne of our lives. It's, like, it's what's determining our actions. It's what's telling us to do. It's, it has us on high alert. It's what we're paying attention to the most. Um, it, it determines how we handle problems. What we fear has a lot of control over us. And you can think, like, even um, with kids or with spouses or with friends or coworkers, like, we can suddenly treat people very poorly because we're afraid of something in that moment, fear of losing control or afraid of what other people think or anything like that. And these, these true stories that we're looking at today in the Gospel according to Luke show us people who were in situations of fear, that felt afraid and overwhelmed. And in both stories, these people have problems that are bigger than themselves, that are beyond their abilities to handle, and they, have, they get scared. And these two stories are actually a part of a set of four stories um, where it's putting Jesus' uh, authority and power on display. And we heard last week how Responding to Jesus' words is very important. And in these four stories, we're doing two of them today, these four stories, Jesus is using his words um, to affect situations. He brings great change and transformation. So Jesus' word is important to respond to. And then we see just how powerful his words are in these two situations. And so there's a, there's a couple of themes to look at. Throughout these four stories, people experience Jesus' power, and they respond with some kind of fear. Every character in the two stories we're looking at today asks Jesus for something, and Jesus responds to them differently. And as we think about prayer, I mean, these people are seeing Jesus 
physically in person. But as we pray, we're asking Jesus for things. We're asking God for things. And it's interesting to see how he responds. These, in these stories, the characters ask Jesus for something, and he responds differently to each of them. And every character uh, sees Jesus' authority and power, but they all respond differently to it. They all do something different with that. So the first story is uh, calming the storm in verses 22 through 25. And uh, what happens in this story is Jesus, um, he's gotten done with teaching. He says, let's get in a boat and go across to the other side of the lake. It's often called the Sea of Galilee, but it's fresh water. It's, it's a lake. Um, so they're getting across this lake. And as they go across, well, Jesus falls asleep. And he's you know, hanging out. Often there could be this cushion or this spot that you could sleep in the boat. And I mean, don't picture this as a boat of like you know, 100 people or something. This is probably his 12 closest disciples, um, the ones he names apostles, and maybe a few of those women that were mentioned in chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. He's like, these people, he's taking them across the lake. And he falls asleep. And then a windstorm picks up on the lake that they weren't expecting. You may think, like, why did they get in the boat if the conditions didn't look good? But the Sea of Galilee, or Lake of Galilee, is known for creating these situations. We stood on the top of this, um, there's almost this ravine. There's a high hill, and there's this ravine that funnels into the lake. And so it's very, a storm can pick up very quickly as the wind kind of rushes down that, and you know, hot and cold mixing together. And plus, it seems that they're uh, doing it at night. And so they wouldn't have seen it. In other gospel accounts, it was at night. And uh, so all of a sudden, this storm is picking up. Their boat's filling with water. And they're in danger. And so they come, and they wake up Jesus. And uh, they're um, saying, you know, we, Master, Master, we are perishing. You know, how would you like to get woken up to that? You're just sound asleep. And that's like the first thing, first thing you hear. And so we might think, okay, well, what's Jesus going to do? He's asleep, and they're waking up and saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. Well, the first thing he could do is talk to them and say, hey, we need to calm down. Let's, let's think about, let's assess the situation. What can we do? Um, try to calm them down and try to get something going. Maybe get up and start helping them with whatever they're doing. Like, we need to bail some water out. Maybe help them uh, bail things out. But Jesus does none of these things. He, doesn't, he stands up, and he doesn't even talk to them, but instead he talks to the wind and the waves. He doesn't talk to the disciples, but he talks to the wind and the waves. He rebukes the wind and the raging waves. And he would look like a crazy person if the wind didn't actually obey him and do what he said. And the waves obey and do what he said. And you've probably seen that commercial where there's a little kid dressed up as Darth Vader, and he's like going throughout his house, and he's like trying to move stuff with his hands, and he's like, you know, nothing's moving, and then his dad pulls in, and then he's like, no, hey, he pushes past his dad and goes to the car, and he's like, trying to control the car, and then all of a sudden it starts up, and he's like, whoa, and then inside you see the dad has like a remote start thing, I don't know, I guess remote start was like a big deal, and this is like, I don't know, 10 years ago, and it would, the kid kind of, you know, you know, that's so cute, like, none of that stuff can really obey you, and we would think, you know, oh, there's a storm outside, like, you know, uh, Larry, why don't you just go take care of that and tell it to stop, you'd be like, uh, or if you just saw me out there, like, ah, you know, go away, storm, and it's like, you look like a crazy person, unless it actually works. Jesus commands things, and what's amazing is that they actually obey. The wind and the waves ceased. It says there was a calm. A storm so bad that they thought they were going to die turns into a calm, you know, glassy surface lake. And how did this happen? Jesus rebuked it like a misbehaving child, or he, you know, or, or, or an out-of-line employee. He just says, knock it off, you know, and it actually listened to him. And only after this, 
does he start talking to his disciples and he asks them, where is your faith? Where is your faith? And I've always thought this question was, I don't know, interesting or odd. Because what, I mean, they came to Jesus, they had a problem, they came to Jesus, they told him, Master, we're perishing. And so it's almost, I mean, prayer, isn't that what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to come to God in our distress in, in whatever is going on. And then Jesus responds and he does something to help them in their distress. But why does he say, where is your faith? What exactly did he want to see in them that he wasn't seeing in them? What would faith have looked like in this situation? What uh, desire did he have to, did he have for them that he wasn't seeing? And I think the key is to look at other examples of people in Scripture who are in dangerous situations. And so, in the Old Testament book of Daniel, there was these three Israelites, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were living in uh, the kingdom of Babylon. They got taken out of the land of Israel, and so they're serving in this kingdom. And uh, King Nebuchadnezzar puts up this huge statue, and everyone's supposed to bow down to it and worship it. And so people report them, because they're not bowing down. They're like, we don't worship idols. We don't worship statues. We worship only God. And so they get brought before the king, and he's like, well, the punishment for this is to be thrown into the furnace, into the you know, fiery furnace. And they tell him, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And later in the book, Daniel has a similar resolve and confidence and this kind of not scrambling, not frantic, like, okay, you know, okay, okay, we'll do what you're saying. I don't want that to happen to me. They just have this, our God can save us, and if he doesn't, we're still not going to do it. And Daniel gets put into this lion's den for praying uh, to, to the Lord. And so he gets thrown in the lion's den, but it's still it's like, you know, I just trusting in God. In the book of Esther, she risks her life by speaking to the king about the plot against her people. And she says, if I perish, then I perish. She just says, no, I'm just going to do what I need to do. In Luke's second volume, the book of Acts, he records how the apostle Paul was also caught in a storm. And the ship was about to break apart. And we find Paul on the ship, not freaking out, not saying, like, somebody, you know, we need to be saved. He's not freaking out in any way. Instead, he's encouraging the sailors. He's giving them advice, and he's remaining in conversation with God the whole time, telling them, this is what God's going to do in this. This is what you need to do if you want to survive this. And these stories give us a picture of faith in dangerous situations where your life is at risk, trusting God with the outcome. I know God can rescue in this, and I'm going to stay in communion with them, him, and I'm just not going to freak out. And these men in this boat who are so fearful, um, later in the book of Acts, chapter 5, um, they're preaching the gospel, telling people about Jesus, and then the, the Jewish council brings them before them, and they get thrown in prison, and the angel lets them out of prison, and they're like, hey, well, they're all, they're all preaching there again. They bring them back in, and then they're like, we're going to, they say, uh, we need to preach the gospel. Like, we're going to uh, obey God rather than men. And they, then they, it says they wanted to kill them. But then one council member says, you know, hey, we shouldn't kill them because we might find ourselves opposing God. So, like, if, if this is a thing, like, it'll keep going. But if it's, you know, false, it'll, it'll die out, just like all these other movements. And so they let them go. And then what do the apostles do? Well, first, before they let them go, they beat them. So it's like, fine, we won't kill you. We'll just beat you and then, then let you go. And what do they do when they're walking out? You know, oh, wow, that, this just stinks. Like, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, this Jesus thing isn't worth it. No, we don't see them doing that. They rejoice that they're counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. These same men in this boat who are freaking out about dying now stand in the front of these people who are saying they're going to kill them, and then they rejoice at 
their life being at risk and at being beaten. And so it seemed Jesus is saying to the disciples, I see there's a storm out here, but why do I see a storm in you? I see there's chaos out here, but why do I see chaos in you? Where is your faith? They're frantic, scrambling, and overwhelmed. Why aren't they praying? Why haven't they, have they even thought to turn to God in this situation? Instead, at this point, they don't believe Jesus is God, like they're all thinking he's the Messiah, but they turn to another man. It's like, where's your faith? Why wouldn't you turn to God in prayer? Have you even thought about him in this situation? And why is there such chaos in your heart? And why is there this lack of peace and lack of calm, even in these circumstances? And so they start with fear of the storm, and they end with fear of Jesus. Because they're afraid of this storm, it put this fear in them, and then all of a sudden they see Jesus calm it, and now it says they were afraid, and they marveled in verse 25. And then they start saying to themselves, who is, who then is this, that he commands even winds and water, and they obey them, obey him. So now they're standing in reverence. They've been taught their whole lives that God is the Lord of the wind and the waves. God is the Lord of nature. God, when they were taken out of the land of Egypt, who parted the seas? God did that. And who controls storms? When Jonah was going, running away to Tarshish, who stopped that storm? God stopped that. Their whole lives have been taught, God is the Lord of the wind and the waves. But now the person in their boat has just shown himself to have authority over the wind and the waves. And so they're thinking, well, who is this? With us, we thought only God could do this, but this person in our boat just did this. Who is Jesus? And we can see where the evidence is pointing, and it's beginning to look like the God they've worshipped their whole life <coughs> has come to them in human form. And but it doesn't actually say that they are starting to have faith in Jesus. When we know through the rest of their life they struggle. We can be amazed by something, but not put our faith in it. Right now they're marveling at him, but it does, they're not necessarily in that place of we're fully trusting in him because that's not what fear and marveling translates to in Luke's gospel. And there's a story, I don't know, I've heard it a couple times, I don't really know the source, of this guy who was, I think it was like Niagara Falls or something, or over, or having a big um, ravine, and he has this tightrope across it, and there's a whole bunch of people standing around watching him, and he's got this wheelbarrow, and he says, you know, how many of you think I can walk across this ravine or valley, you know, the Grand Canyon or something, um, how many of you think I can walk across this? You know, oh, we, we think we can walk across it. How many of you think I can uh, put stuff in this wheelbarrow and push that across it? Yeah, yeah, we believe you can do that. How many of you would get in this wheelbarrow and let me push you across it? Oh, no, 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 I can't do it. So wait a second. They're willing to marvel at him pushing this wheelbarrow across. And they actually say, we believe you can push this wheelbarrow across with stuff in it, but when it comes time to well, will you let me push you across it? No. And so it's this example of we can be, say with our heads, we think someone can do something, or we can marvel at what somebody can do, but we might not actually put our trust in that person to do that thing for us. And faith is placing yourself in the care and control of someone else. And so think, when, when do you feel afraid or overwhelmed? And we often feel overwhelmed when we come up against something that's bigger than us or beyond us, or outside our comfort zone. So things smaller than us, we can handle. Oh, I can, I can handle this. I'm used to this. This is smaller than me. You know, I'm, I feel like I'm in control of this thing. Things that are within our abilities are okay. When we're in our comfort zone, we stay calm. But when something is bigger than us, we feel threatened and afraid. This is just too big for me. 
When something is beyond our ability to handle, we feel overwhelmed. When, we, when something is outside of our comfort zone, we get stressed, anxious, and worried. And, and these things feel out of our control. When we have too much to do or don't know how to do something or don't feel comfortable doing it, we get scared and overwhelmed. Uh, but Jesus is showing us he can handle things that are much bigger than us and beyond us and that are out of our comfort zone. And the second part of the passage, encountering this man with the demons. These stories are um, knit together because he crosses the lake and then as soon as they gets on land, um, it's, he's met by this guy who's possessed by demons. You know, think about that. You're like, we just got out of this storm. Oh, gosh, I'm getting a little breather. And it says, as soon as Jesus embarked the boat, he steps on land, this dude comes up who's naked, apparently, because he's not wearing clothes, and he's you know, not in his right mind. He's naked. He's homeless. And they, he runs up to Jesus, bows before him, and says, what do you have to do with me? And he knows who Jesus is. Jesus, son of the most high God. You know, in other words, why bother with me? Why interfere? What are you coming here to mess around with my business? And we see that he recognizes who Jesus is. The, I mean, the demons in uh, all the Gospels are like the first um, beings to recognize who Jesus is. Um, calls him Jesus, son of the most high God. And that's what happened back in chapter 4. Demons said the same thing. They recognize who Jesus is. And they assume Jesus has come to defeat them because they say, I beg you, do not torment me. Jesus has complete control over them. Please don't torment me. They don't even fight back. They just say, we don't want this to happen to us. And so Jesus, they recognize Jesus is more powerful authority and they, that they're defeated. And verse 29 gives us more backstory about this guy. It says, many a time it had seized him he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And so he's, the locals are trying to manage this problem. This guy is a menace, like he's kind of messed up. Um, you might think of a guy that is just you know, kind of wild, doesn't follow the rules and just terrorizes people. And like, we've got to like, manage this problem. And they're trying to do the best they can. But then we see Jesus is having this conversation with them. Once they... Uh, the demon says, no, please don't do this to us. Uh, he says in verse 30, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. And a legion is, you know, it's not an exact number, but it's four, around 4,000 to 6,000 um, troops in the Roman army. And this military term legion, you know, legion is part of the army, puts this into, uh, it's a battle image. And so this is a, a battle, and the battleground is this person made in the image of God. This is what the, where the territory they're fighting over, Jesus and this demon. And we see uh, that the three times, though, uh, you know, who's, who's in control here? Three times, the demon begs Jesus to do something. Like, Please do this. No, don't do this. Please do this instead. So Jesus is in complete control. And then uh, he sends uh, the demon um, into, the, they beg him, please send us into these pigs. Don't throw us into the abyss. And the abyss was um, this, this term, you know, it's like a deep place, it could be a deep watery place. Please don't send us there. And you may know, think, like, why doesn't Jesus just destroy them? Why doesn't he you know, torment them, as he said? Why doesn't he send them where they belong? And one explanation would be, well, it's not time yet. That time of Jesus' kingdom is not at this moment. And it, that is going to be, Later, but they beg him, please send us in these pigs. And so Jesus gives them permission, 
and they go into these pigs, and the pigs immediately rush off the, um, this cliff into um, the sea, the Lake of Galilee. And it may be like, well, that's kind of weird. You know, why, why the pigs? Why does he do that? Why does he do what the demon said? And why is he giving them, you know, letting them kind of live? Well, there's a couple things that shows us. One, the demon, or the pigs going off the edge, shows visible proof that the demons have left the man. It shows to all those people watching, well, this guy, the demons really left. Like, they went in off the cliff and the pigs. And it also shows us, for this man to be liberated from the evil of these dark spiritual powers, another must take his place. For this man to be liberated from these evil dark powers, another must take his place. The demons take the place, uh, sorry, the pigs take the place of the man. The demons leave him and go to the pigs. Also, it also shows us that removing evil is costly. It doesn't just poof and like, yep, yeah, you're just gone. Um, but it's costly. These, something else lost its life, had to go into another thing. And ultimately, Jesus will defeat the powers of darkness that enslave us by taking our place and paying the cost. The, deem, the pigs took the place of the man, and it was costly to get rid of them. And ultimately, Jesus, you know, whatever the dark powers against us, Satan and his minions... Our take, Jesus takes our place in paying the cost that we owe and he liberates us. And then what happens is that the report gets brought, you know, these herdsmen see this happen, they bring the report to other people and other people come and they see, whoa, this man is you know, healed, like a complete change of condition in him. And then the people who had witnessed it firsthand say, and this is how he was healed. They explain, this is what Jesus did. And so all of a sudden it's like, you're, you know, you're the guy that did this? And you can see that there's a total reversal of his condition. and we see, So he's described first as a man had, who had many demons, and then we're told the deme- demons had gone from the man. He had worn no clothes, and now he's clothed. He did not live in a house, but in the tombs. And then later, he, Jesus returns him to his home. And he fell down before Jesus and shouted when he had the demons in him, and he stepped off the boat. But now he's sitting at Jesus' feet, listening, being taught by Jesus, listening to what Jesus has to say. And before the demon had seized him and he was out of control and now he's in his right mind. It's a total reversal of the situation and condition he was in. And the witnesses explain, this is how it happened. Jesus did it uh, to this guy. But then we're told in verse 37, you would think, wow, we have a lot of other problems you can help us out with. But that's not what they do. It says, verse 37, and then all the people of the surrounding country of the garrisons, asked them to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. And Jesus' authority, his power, his control over something they couldn't control scares them. And think about you know, people you know in your life, or even for yourself. Jesus' control is a threat to those who want to stay in control. They were trying to manage the situation. They got them bound in chains and stuff. They're managing it. And it's not working. You know, we come up with lots of duct tape solutions in our lives of like, I got this problem and I'm going to kind of rig it together with duct tape or whatever I can find, you know, hairpins and paper clips. And it's working. It's my solution. Maybe it's not working great, but it's my solution. I'm in control of it. And for Jesus to come into our life, it's like we have to give control. We have to surrender. Like, yes, do with me as you want. Make the changes in me you want. It's kind of like if you had your home and, you know, you had somebody come in and we're like, yeah, I just want to remodel the whole thing. You'd be like, you know, like, I'm not going to move out. I always find it amazing in those HGTV shows where they're, um, 
they just are like, yeah, just, we just want it to be better. And they just let these people completely remodel their home. And it's like, Jesus, do you want, will we let Jesus into our life to completely remodel us to do whatever he wants? It's like, no, Jesus, I really like this wall here. Jesus, I really like this little messy pile here. Please leave that. It's like, no, we've got to let him in to renovate our whole entire lives. And people who have accepted that their lordship of their life isn't working are more ready to give up control. And we need to come to that place, too, over and over again. And we can hold on to control in certain areas. Like, maybe I've given up control in this area, but in this area I haven't. We may think, well, this man, he's not given a name, so he could be any of us. We could be this guy in this story. He's not given a name, but who's the focus? Jesus is given the focus. Oh, he, he's the guy that healed him. And if you think this guy is just super extreme, like I'm never going to experience something like that. But the reality is, this is where we would be without God. If, the traject- if God just let us go on the trajectory of our lives uh, without stopping us, without saving us, without uh, delivering us from the sin and Satan and death, this is the trajectory of our lives. It may take until eternity to get there, but this is our trajectory without Jesus. And as we look at people in our life or in our world, some people are further along in that trajectory than we are. may feel good about ourselves. But we have to think, that's where I would go, be going and heading toward as well if my pride and my selfishness were allowed to just run their course. But Jesus came into our deadness. He entered into our darkness. And he didn't avoid it. He didn't look the other way. He came to us and he carried us out of it. That's what it means to you know, be delivered, that God... And the people when they're in Egypt, with a strong and mighty hand, he delivered them from that slavery. And Jesus does for this man what he was powerful to do, powerless to do for himself. And Jesus does the same for us. So just a summary of this passage, a few things we see. If you because anybody this is kind of like a Bible trivia, who else fell asleep during a storm in the Bible? Jonah. Jonah, I guess I kind of mentioned him earlier, but we see the credit. Boom, boom, credit. <laughs> Jonah falls asleep during a storm. And then what happens? The people on the boat are freaking out. They wake him up. Hey, we need to be praying to our gods. And eventually they find out, oh, this storm is coming upon us because of you running from your god. So they're like, what should we do with you? And he's like, throw me overboard. They throw him overboard, and then the storm immediately calms, and all the people on the boat fear and worship God and make vows to him. And we see something similar here. Jesus is asleep. In the boat, he gets woken up. The storm gets calmed by him, um, not by throwing him into the water, but if you think about it, he does get thrown into the water in taking our place on the cross, and that calms the storm against us. And then these people, the guys in the boat fear, and they marvel. And it's interesting to think, where is Jesus going? He's going across the Sea of Galilee, and on the other side is not Israel, it's Gentile territory. What did Jonah not want to do? He didn't want to go and preach um, any sort of message from God to those evil, um, wicked Ninevites. He didn't want to go to the people who weren't of the people of Israel. So Jesus is on this mission um, over to the Gentiles. And we see a demonstration of Jesus' power in in two ways in these two stories. Which of us could stop a raging storm? It's beyond us. It's overwhelming. And the disciples are being battered around like you know, a cat toy by a cat. They're just like, what are we doing? We can't do anything. And which of us could stand against a legion of demons? You know, it's 5,000 against one. And this month, and Jesus, and they're completely in obedience to Jesus. This man's life was completely 
changed. It was ruined, and it was completely changed. And he was not able to subdue these demons by himself, but Jesus could. And then we see four different responses to Jesus' power. The disciples react fearfully and marveling. They don't know what to do with Jesus' power. And the demons, they fall down before Jesus and beg him not to torment him, them or to send them into the abyss where they're going to be eventually uh, put at, when Jesus returns. They don't want Jesus to use his power against them. The townspeople ask Jesus to depart because of his power. They have great fear. They want Jesus to withdraw because of his power. And the garrison man who had the demons begs Jesus, let me be with you. Let me go with you. Let me go be part of this group of disciples. And he's drawn to Jesus because of his power and how he uses that power for his advantage. And so in both situations, the storm and the man possessed with demons, people have problems bigger than themselves and beyond their abilities. And Jesus is calm in both situations. I mean, he's sleeping during a storm and then he's not freaking out with this demon. He's just telling him what to do and um, answering, uh, saying what he needs to say. And in both stories, Jesus does for them what they couldn't do for themselves. They could not save themselves from the condition that they were in. And the same is true for us, that Jesus does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He saves us from a condition that we cannot get ourselves out of. So a big idea for this passage, these two stories, is find calm in Jesus who is greater than everything. Find calm in Jesus who is greater than everything. We see with the storm, a chaotic situation. We see with the demon-possessed man, a chaotic life. This guy's life is in chaos. But both find calm in Jesus because he's greater than everything. Jesus is greater than any danger in the storm. They're in danger. They say, we're mad. We're, they're in danger of sinking. They master, master, we're perishing. And Jesus is greater than that danger. And he's greater than any darkness. That this man, think about the darkness of his life. That he's now, been, this demon's just taking him over. And he's homeless. He's naked. He hasn't seen his family. And Jesus is greater than that darkness that no one else could subdue. The one who is with us is greater than the world. He's overcome the world. And our peace and calm that we can find is that Jesus is with us. And what freaks us out doesn't freak Jesus out. He isn't freaked out in either of these situations. He's just in control of it. And there's a, a saying that says, God will not give you more than you can handle. And do you think that this story demonstrates that truth? I don't think any of the people in this story could handle what was in their life. Uh, But God certainly, uh, actually, he does the opposite. He gives us more than we can handle. So we have to look to something outside of ourselves in order for that thing to handle it. And we're supposed to look out to God. God always gives us more than we can handle. He gives us more than we can handle, so we look to him. So we place our life, our future, our situations, our relationships, our security in someone else's hands. And though some of these men were fishermen, uh, they lacked the ability to... Get, they're probably using their own boat even. They lack the ability to get themselves out of this. Disciples came to the end of their resources, realizing their own effort and their own strength and their own knowledge wasn't going to get them out of this, and so they turned to Jesus. And the demoniac, as well, could not free himself. It was something outside of himself. So I want you to think, I want you to actually make a list. And what we're going to do with this, uh, we're going to do something with the list if you have a bulletin or um, something else to write on. What's on your mind that you feel stressed or worried about? What do you feel scared about? And 
what are your emotions kind of running high in regard to right now? And you might be someone who projects a calm front on the outside, but actually there's a storm inside. And that's often how I can be, is that I need to be calm, I need to be a stable person, and, so, and I want to be known as that. And so it's like, even if I've got a storm on the inside, I often can present a calm front on the outside. So what's on your mind that you feel stressed or worried about? What's overwhelming you? What are you scared about right now? Let's give you a few moments to make that list. list, you might think, well, none of this is comparable to being in a boat in a storm about to die, or none of this is being homeless with no clothes and naked or, you know, looking crazy. But there's kind of a spectrum of danger, and there's a spectrum of darkness. It's like you can be on the, the one extreme, these guys, you can be on the extreme of, I'm about to die, or I'm possessed by demons, but you can also be on the other end of, like, well, you know, I've got this job situation I'm worried about, or I've got this thing with my kid that I'm kind of stressed about. You know, we could be on a kind of a continuum or a spectrum between the most extreme and like the less extreme. And these two true stories showed how Jesus is greater than even the deadliest danger and the deepest darkness. And so whatever you wrote down, it's like, well, Jesus doesn't going to care about that because they're not as big as those things. But it's like, well, it shows you that Jesus can fully take care of those things because he can take care of the worst thing that we see in this story. And I just want, with that list now, is everyone wondering, what is this symbol there you can't answer? Or Katie, what is this symbol in math? You're right. If I had done it the other way, it would have been great. I mean, it's supposed to be greater than, but you guys are right. It's a lesson right now. Um, what we're going to do is, here's your list. Now put to the right of it. You've got your list of stuff that you're scared of, overwhelmed by, worried about. That list. Jesus is right, Katie. Am I doing this right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Jesus is greater than that list. That's what this whole these four stories we did two of them today are showing. Jesus is greater than the powers of nature. He's greater than the powers of darkness. He's greater than he'll show in the next two stories: disease and death. Jesus is, whatever you wrote down, put a little greater than, and put Jesus over there. And it's like, Jesus is greater than all those things you're afraid of, that you're worried about, that you're stressed about, that are overwhelming you. And we can find our calm in Jesus as the one who's greater than anything and everything. You know, consider to yourself, what do you usually do to calm yourself? What And do you turn to something instead of Jesus? I mean, the disciples were like, Freaking out, and they didn't turn to God in prayer. Where do you go when you're freaking out? I mean, we wonder why don't we find our calm in Him? And for the disciples, they didn't see His power, and they didn't see Him as greater than. That might be one reason: is that we have our list, and we don't see Jesus as greater than that list. So we're not finding our calm in Him. And the other might be that we don't want His power. That's where the people 
uh, in the, the townspeople, the locals there that saw this man healed, that they didn't want his power. They don't want someone greater than them or greater than their problems that uh, we can often want. I want to handle it my own way, even if I'm not actually able to, even if it's not working. My life isn't working in this area, but I still just want to handle it myself instead of giving it to Jesus. When we see Jesus greater than any danger in any darkness, there's no place too dangerous and there's no place too dark that Jesus cannot or will not uh, overcome them in order to change us and rescue us. And there's no thing too dangerous, no thing too dark that Jesus can't rescue us from. There's no danger or darkness that he cannot overcome. There's no danger or darkness more powerful than him. And so whether it's on the extreme end of the spectrum of danger or darkness or on the lower end, Whatever grips you or enslaves you or holds you down, Jesus can free you from it. There's no amount of damage that puts you beyond Jesus' power to repair and transform and restore you. And this man in the story, so we, we heard that he's living in the tombs where the dead people are instead of in his home. And then Jesus at the end says, yeah. no, I don't want you to come with me. I want you to return to your home and so he's been estranged from his house and his family. He's been separated from it. Now I want you to go back there and tell them how much God has done for you. And First Peter 2, 9-10 through 10 says, We are God's people so that we might proclaim the excellencies of the one who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. This man was called out of darkness. And he goes back to this, this place that he was. It's interesting who... There's a lot of people that make requests of Jesus in this story. But who's the one person's request that he denies? The disciples went to Jesus and that told him about something. Uh, the demons ask him for something. The people ask him, the townspeople ask him for something. He does what all of them ask of him. But this man who actually wants to follow him, who now has faith in him, he said he denies his request and said he has a different purpose for him. And often we may see, well, why is this person's life going that way? Man, they have everything they want. But they might actually be people who have said, Jesus, I'm afraid of you, please leave. And he has left them, and now they're getting everything they want without Jesus, everything they want in this you know, worldly life. But he tells this man, you have a different purpose. You know, last week we saw the four soils. And for me, when I look at the first soil, it's, it fell along the hard path, and then the birds came and ate it. And Jesus says, this is someone with a hard heart, and Satan takes the seed away right away. They don't even... They didn't even look like they believed at all. And for me, I can feel like, well, you know, that soil is kind of beyond hope. There's no hope for that soil. But if you look at this man, wouldn't you say he's that first soil? That he has a legion of demons in his life. He's in darkness. It's like, that guy, he is hopeless. Like, he's never going to be, you know, somebody who's worshiping God or fearing God or, or trusting in Jesus. But... And it's easy to just write him off. But Jesus overcomes this person's barrier. The, the worst sinner, the most stubborn, angry atheist, the addict whose life is falling apart, the person who's angry at God for what they've done, it, you know, kind of giving him the middle finger. There's always hope. Nobody's ever beyond Jesus' power to save and transform. And with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. So we need to ask ourselves, do we believe that? Do you have anybody in your life who's like this demoniac guy, the guy with all the demons. I mean, it's probably not that extreme, but people where you're like, they're just beyond saving. There's no hope for them. But it isn't our job to assess the quality of the soil, but only to sow the seed and see if it is good soil. 
We sow into every kind of soil and believe the results to God. And this man was not beyond Jesus' power to save. And so, why don't you take a moment and write, write one last thing down. Picture the person in your life that you think would never come to believe. I want to encourage you, challenge you, to begin praying for them. This person, there's just no hope for them. Like, I've tried. Or maybe you just haven't tried because you're like, there's just no, no way. Who is that person? I want you to start praying for them. We all should pray. And then how do we bear witness? We tell them what you said to this man. Go tell the people in your house, in your town, how much God has done for you. That's how we bear witness. We tell people, this is my testimony. There's so much God has done for me. And then we leave the results to God. We trust Jesus to do in them what we can't do in them and what they can't do in themselves. We bear witness to them. And for us, we... Jesus is with us. He calls us to be a community that is calm in the chaos around us. Because the one who is greater than all of it is with us and he's for us. And Jesus said, do we really believe this? He said, the gates of hell cannot prevail against his church and against him. And we see that right here in this. So there's nothing uh, that Jesus says he can't overcome in order to rescue somebody from the darkness that they're in or the danger they're in. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this picture of Jesus' care and power and his ability to rescue. Thank you for reaching into each of our lives and rescuing us from our sin and darkness we may have been experiencing and from the bondage of Satan. In other words, you continue to Free us more and more from those things that hold us down. And God, would you give us faith that those around us can come to believe in Jesus just like this man did. And would you fill our hearts with thankfulness for what you've done for us. So let me pray. Amen.